Drafting Archetypes is sponsored by Grey Viking Games. Check them out at greyvikinggames.com and use our code DRAFT10 for 10% off. Hi everyone, Sam Black here with another episode of Drafting Archetypes. This week we are going to be discussing drafting blue-red in Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. Uh, for anyone here who is a limited guru level patron or above, the notes have been posted on patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. And so you can pull those up if you're interested and follow along. Jumping right into things. Blue-red is the second worst performing archetype in the format, so not necessarily something you want to be looking to draft. Uh, it is 2.1% ahead of blue-white, um, which is the worst performing. 2.1 is a pretty big jump. So like, while it's the second worst, there's still a lot of room between it and the actual worst, but it is a full percent behind the third worst, which is blue-green. Obviously, notably, all three of those are blue. Blue continues to really struggle in this format. That shouldn't be too surprising at this point if you've been following my content or drafting Forgotten Realms or paying attention to anyone discussing it. The next question for me here is, is blue-red necessarily bad or does it trap people into drafting it incorrectly? So as always, my focus is on figuring out how to draft uh, the archetype as well as you can in spots where it's the archetype that you should be drafting, as well as identifying when you should be drafting it. But what I want to focus on is whether this win rate is lower than it should be if this set didn't trick people into drafting this deck the wrong way. And so the, the reason that I'm going down that path in particular for this archetype in particular is that when I was like exploring it and forcing it and stuff, and people saw me drafting blue-red, they would say things like, oh, you're drafting blue-red die roll. And while this format in general has not tricked people very much in that like black-white really did want to be venturing, and the venture cards did perform better in black and white decks than they did in other decks. Green-white uh, really did want to be gaining life, and the best card and most successful cards in green-white really pushed that theme and synergy. Oh, and similarly, uh, treasure is like very powerful in red-black. That's something you want to be doing. By contrast, uh, blue-red's theme is die rolling. It has a lot of cards that roll dice and a lot of cards that make die rolling better. Problem is, those cards aren't actually good, and rolling dice isn't actually what you want to do when you're drafting blue-red. I, I have a few different like ways that, like, I, I kind of had that theory, and then I had a few different ways that I used to verify that theory. So, for example, I just started by looking at the game in hand win rates uh, on 17 lands for all of the like die roll matters cards. And while the average win rate for blue red is uh, 52 point something or other, the average win rate for the best one of those cards, uh, Feywild Trickster, the three mana 2-2 two two that makes a 1-1 a one -one flyer when you roll a die, is 53%, which is just a hair above the average win rate for uh, the archetype. But that, that's the actual best uh, payoff for this thing. From there, we go to Pixie Guide at 51.9%. And now your other like flagship uncommons in uh, Ferida Devil's Chosen is 50.5%. And then Barbarian Class, 47.6%, which is really bad. 
And then brazen dwarf, exactly the same rate as Farida, uh, 50.5. So like all of those die roll matters cards don't improve your deck. You you win less when you draw them, except for Feywild Trickster. And I think that what's happening is all of these cards are dragging down a vast majority of drafters' blue-red decks because they take and play those cards. So then the other thing that I'm that I wanted to look at while I'm going down this line of like, okay, this archetype shouldn't be drafted intuitively. You you shouldn't trust the design. You shouldn't play the cards that like say that they want to be played together. You need to do something else. And we'll explore what that is in a little bit. But I wanted to focus right now on what mistakes are people making? What are people doing that you should not be doing? So what I did next is I sorted like the blue and red cards. Well, I sorted the cards in the blue-red decks on 17 lands by game in hand number. So the cards that people are playing the most and drawing the most. And then uh, went down that list and looked for the cards that win a notably below average amount, went straight down and looked for like, okay, of the most played cards, which ones are underperforming? So like the card that is most played that underperforms some amount is Pixie Guide, followed by Charmed Sleep. Charmed Sleep is a card that I've had some amount of discussion about both it and cards similar to it reasonably often on my stream. I, in general, across like all of Limited, don't like Sorcery Speed Removal very much. And then as a subset of that, don't like auras that attempt to answer creatures very much relative to the average drafter. I think that just across all formats, they don't answer as many creatures as you as like people think of them as a real removal spell when actually they don't answer some set of like creatures with static abilities and various utility creatures. And also, they open you up to various exploits across different formats, whether that's bouncing a creature that has this enchantment on it, or killing the enchantment, or sacrificing the creature for value. Just one way or another, uh, you end up getting punished for playing these cards in some capacity. And so during my guest stream uh, on Sunday a few days ago, one of the uh, drafts, we ended up drafting blue. And I kept not wanting to pick charm sleep uh despite the fact that you know that there weren't other particularly good cards in the pack and at the end of the draft we did end up with some charm sleeps and i was like okay i'll take these cards uh because we're playing best of three and i might sideboard them in but i don't want to play with them and then when we got to deck building i didn't put them in my deck even though uh vivale who is drafting with me said you know i think i would play a charm sleep here I, i wasn't willing to do it and I don't remember if we ever ended up siding one in. We ended up winning all of our uh, matches with the deck. It played out really well. So I certainly didn't actively miss the Charm Sleep. That doesn't prove that the Charm Sleep wouldn't have been good. But looking at the stats, I, I do think that Charm Sleep probably had a worse win rate than all the cards that we played. Seeing that Charm Sleep doesn't perform well uh, is no shock to me. That's in line with my personal expectations about that kind of card. But this is just to say, like, hey, you know, this isn't necessarily just me out on some limbs saying crazy things about this card that I have a weird bias against, the stats actually do back me up. This card is pretty bad and you probably shouldn't be playing it, uh, even if you have a history of like thinking about these kinds of cards as like, oh, that's a removal spell, it's fine. So Pixie Guide, Charm Sleep, Ferrita, Raisin Dwarf, Barbarian Class, all die cards. So that was you know the most played cards that win a below average amount outside of Charm Sleep 
were all those die roll cards, which is where it's not just, hey, these die roll cards aren't good. Also, numbers show me that people are actually putting these cards in their deck at a high rate, which is what led to the belief that like, hey, maybe blue-red isn't winning that much because so many people are playing these cards and they're dragging their decks down. So maybe blue-red's not quite as bad as it looks if you actually draft it the right way rather than drafting it in this way where you ignore the theme. Next, uh, Wizard Class, uh, Armory Veteran, Shortcut Seeker, Guild Thief, Shocking Grasp. There's no particular like thing in common or point about the rest of these. I just As long as I did some research to figure out which cards were trapping people that they were playing more than they should, I might as well kind of let you know what some of the other ones were. So like Wizard Class, Armory Veteran, Shortcut Seeker, Guild Thief, Shocking Grasp, Power of Persuasion, Unexpected Windfall, Trickster's Talisman, Secret Door, and you see a pair of goblins. Those were the cards that uh, were played in reasonably large numbers and performed at a relatively like below average rate. Uh, the highlights for worst performing of those cards were Barbarian class, and then only barely better than Barbarian class uh, was Guild Thief. Those two are the biggest traps in terms of people play these cards despite the fact that they're really, really bad. Uh, and then the biggest traps in terms of these cards are bad and people play them way too often are Pixie Guide, Charm Sleep, and Ferida. That's what's not to do in Blue-Red. Those are the cards you want to avoid. Now let's focus on what you should do. To start with, the uh, five best performing uncommons and commons looked at at the same time in Blue-Red are Battlecry Goblin, number one, followed by Dragon's Fire, followed by Red Dragon, followed by Swarming Goblins, followed by Jin Windseer. Notably, that is Jin Windseer ahead of like magic missile, um, only barely ahead, but Jin Winsir performs um, has performed better in blue red across everyone so far than magic missile, which is uh, kind of surprising to me. Those are the standouts. The next five top performing cards are all uncommons: magic missile, blue dragon, fly, chaos channeler, and burning hands. And then coincidentally, the top five after that are all commons: improvised weaponry, hobgoblin captain. You see a guard approach. Valor uh, Singer and Farida's Fireball. Most notable thing there is you see a guard approach um, performing appreciably above average at uh, 52.2%. Really small sample size, so I don't know how much you should take away from that. I would say that it is in line with kind of something that we've noticed across multiple formats now, that these like one mana tricks do tend to overperform compared to how they're drafted at the very least. Uh, they're, they're drafted late, played not very often, but when people play them, they perform pretty well. We saw a lot of that in Kaldheim, and this is a trend that I think shouldn't surprise you at this point. Um, it's the same situation with Ambush on the Road. So do watch for one-mana tricks, and like don't, don't start drafting them highly. You'll get more than you need if you're just aware of them at all. Um, but if you're thinking about, you know, if you're like in a spot where you're trying to figure out how to round your deck and you, there's nothing your deck's really lacking, I, I would say consider consider playing it a little bit more often when you're just like, I need a filler card here. Um, and it, it, I wouldn't be surprised if it outperforms some kind of, you know, filler creature that might be your last card. Again, if you're not short on creatures. So those are the cards that performed well, but it, it you know, just a list of random cards that are good. It doesn't really tell you a lot. If we're not 
building a die roll theme deck, what are we trying to do? So I, I haven't drafted Blue Red a ton because I know that it's not very good and I've mostly been trying to win. And in general, there aren't a lot of blue cards that would just like strike me as a reason to draft blue. Uh, so I didn't have a lot of experience. So yesterday, knowing that this was what I was going to be talking about today, I tried forcing Blue Red a few times um, to get some experience playing the cards and see how the draft goes. And I do feel like I, I learned from that experience. And then the other thing that I did outside of looking at stats and playing those games yesterday to gather data for myself is I looked over all of the recent trophy decks that I could find on 17 Lands list of recent trophy decks that were blue-red to see how those successful blue-red decks looked. And my primary impressions from those two things was first... I believe that Blue Red really wants to be, I think, well, it, it wants to be like a tempo aggro sort of deck. I think across most formats historically, there are really like two divergent ways to draft Blue Red. There's kind of the red way and the blue way. The red way is like aggressive, high power creatures, and then like blue tempo plays to like get those high power creatures through and some like funky, like my opponent can't block me type combat tricks. You're like frost links kinds of cards that like, or frost breath type cards, cards that tap blockers and stop them from untapping or tap creatures and stop them from untapping so that you can win races, some flyers and some early pressure, some removal, kind of a more like tricky, sometimes a bit of a scrappy aggro game. And then there's the blue way. Uh, where you have like more card draw, defensive creatures, using red for removal rather than using red for aggressive creatures. So those are kind of the two like divergent approaches to blue-red that kind of just exist throughout Limited. And in this set, I believe that the you know red-based deck using blue cards, this aggressive approach, is a lot more successful than the like defensive card advantage approach that uses red cards. So I, I would say like the blue deck that uses red cards is more of an attrition deck, more of a control deck, whereas the red deck that uses blue cards is more of a tempo deck. So on the like tempo to attrition spectrum, um, you're looking at basically you know f focusing on opposite ends there. So you end up with these like really different ways to approach solving the question of how to draft blue-red in different formats or even at different tables. In some formats, sometimes you want to go one way, sometimes you want to go the other way. I think, in general, you want to be aggressive, particularly if you don't have rares. And this, this is a theme that I've come back to in probably more episodes than not. Uh, this idea that when you don't have rares in limited in general, you want to be aggressive, you want to end games. When you do have rares, you can afford to be controlling and play longer games. I think we see that really, really, really strongly in uh, this format in particular, um, and in Blue Red in particular, uh, more so than other decks and other formats. And it, it's really highlighted here, where if you don't have rares, you really, really want to win with cards like. Hobgoblin Captain to get early pressure down, Sign of Stygia to uh, like push your Hobgoblins through or lock their creatures down while you win in the air with your Jin Windseers, and re really focusing on those creatures. And then when you do have rares, uh, you might want to focus a little bit more on 
cards like Improvised Weaponry and Bar the Gates and Faraday's Fireball and uh, play like a more controlling game. And I think that in this format in particular, Blue-Red will sometimes allow you to have a lot of rares, specifically because so many people are correctly avoiding blue that it's very often the case that only one or two drafters at a table are drafting blue and other people will pass them blue rares that are opened. And so it's not that uncommon to see blue decks specifically that have just like way too many rares for a draft deck compared to what, you know, the number of draft deck, of rares that draft decks normally have. So if you find yourself in that like really open blue seat where you just get a lot of rares, um, especially if you start with a good red rare. Um, like I noticed, not terribly surprisingly, a lot of the trophy decks on 17 lands had Meteor Swarm, a really powerful bomb in an archetype that can play a controlling role pretty well, but often gets like overpowered and outclassed in the late game when it does that. If you have Meteor Swarm and some other rares, now you can lean into playing this like control game and using blues high toughness creatures using your red removal spells and then expect to beat people with your card quality but it's really really hard in this format in general when you don't have busted rares that you're going to draw to expect to beat people with your card quality when you're playing blue because the blue commons and uncommons just aren't good it's literally impossible for you to have enough card quality to just like overpower your opponents with blue cards because they're weak and the synergies are a lie. Like the, the synergies that they have aren't worth pursuing. So you can't make them better than some of their parts and the parts individually are bad. So like, where are you going? And the answer is either you're killing your opponent or you're drawing rares. That to me is just like the crux of what's going on is either you're in the seat where blue's open and you're getting all the rares or you're in a seat where red's pretty open and you have like aggressive creatures and you're probably cut on black and you're trying to like, you know, you, you started the draft taking these good red goblin cards, mostly battle cry goblin, swarming goblins, hobgoblin captain. And then you're like, okay, well now I have these good red cards. I need to find second color. Nothing else is open. Well, I guess blue's open. Blue's always open. The back half of every pack is blue cards. So which of these blue cards am I supposed to take to have a coherent deck? And you're looking for like Jin wins here, sign of Stygia, really those two over everything else you know maybe like you see a guard approach even some like air cult elementals sort of like round out your tempo game and that that's kind of what you want your deck to be those are really my my main points here don't draft blue red the way that people have been don't follow the themes here even though the themes in this set are generally good and figure out if you are about rares or if you are about pressure those are your options last few notes i think both of your both of those different directions uh both the aggressive deck and the controlling deck wants to be drafted in a way that they use sign of stygia well the aggressive decks use sign of stygia to tap blockers and kill their opponents and like play this tempo game and win races and the control decks use sign of stygia to buy time but not just to buy time, but also to allow them to play this instant speed game with bar the gates and perhaps you find the villain's lair and maybe some instant speed card draw and uh, just play a very reactive game where the fact that this creature has flash is really valuable. 
So um, regardless of which direction you're going with it, Sign of Stygia, I think, is like a pretty important piece of either deck. And like this is a card that I personally definitely like slapped on at the beginning of the format. It read very weak to me. I didn't really take it or play it ever. But I think when you have a good version of either of the things that you want to be doing with blue-red, you want it in your deck. I could say also it's a die roll card. So if you're the die roll deck, that's a third blue-red deck that would want it. Except again, you should never be the die roll deck and you should never take it for the, like the fact that it's rolling dice. Another single card note in general on this podcast and in my drafting, I've been a bit of a secret door apologist. That does not carry over to blue red. I think that you generally want to avoid uh, playing secret door in blue red. Most of what's going on there is secret door and the other venture cards are worse in blue red than they are in other blue decks because of the lack of venture support from red. Also, you know, obviously it's not contributing to the aggressive tempo blue red deck, like the the red blue deck. And then as far as using it in a control role in the blue base deck where you have bombs, maybe, maybe. There's a chance you can get away with that. But it's not great. I would prefer to have other stuff. Oh, sorry. There is one other uh, specific card that I wanted to talk about which is Hobgoblin Captain. Hobgoblin Captain, I mentioned in the like list of best performing cards, uh, its win rate is 54.3% in blue-red, but I think it should be drafted considerably higher than that because in general, I'm a really big proponent of, you know, all else equal, just take the card with the highest game in hand win rate, unless there's something special about the context of the deck that you're drafting in particular that makes you value this card more than other people would, or leads you to believe that this card will perform better for you than it does in general, or avoid something that you think, well, this is only good if I have this thing that I don't have. For example, Price of Loyalty has a really, really high game in win hand win rate, but that's because people only play it if they have sack outlets. If you don't have sack outlets, you're not going to like actualize that high win percentage, so you should discount it and not draft it. Hobgoblin Captain, there's something else going on. And that thing that's going on is that there that Blue-Red really, really, really wants premium two drops. If you're the aggressive deck, you need them to put your opponent under a clock. And if you're the control deck, you need them so that you don't fall behind and you can start holding up your like bar the gates and playing this like reactive game. But you can't play a reactive game if your opponent is ahead on the board. So you need to have like this good two drop that can trade with their early play to let you transition into playing that reactive game. So either deck wants to start with a good two drop and their flat out isn't another option. Uh, like Battlecry Goblin exists, but it's like this super premium card that basically no one should pass. If you get it, great, but you're going to need more than whatever Battlecry Goblins you get. Then the next best you can do is Hobgoblin Captain. And the next best after that is a card that you don't really want to put in your deck. You know, like Pixie-Eyed and Brazen Dwarf and Armory Veteran all appear on the biggest traps list. And Arcane Investigator, I think is the name of it, the 2-1, you can spend six mana to draw cards, doesn't appear on the top commons list, with top commons going all the way down to like 53%. So it's it's 52 point something percent, considerably worse than Hobgoblin Captain. It's, it's okay to play it if you have to, but Hobgoblin Captain is so much better 
than any other two-drop common in an archetype that really wants a lot of two-drop commons, such that really a lot of like how good are the is the common support for your deck is going to come down to exactly how many hobgoblin captains, or arguably how many hobgoblin captains plus dragon's fires do you have? The hobgoblin captain by itself isn't necessarily doing that much to change your win rate in terms of like how that ends up showing through in the data. But I do think that like its value of a replacement in a really valuable slot is so high that you really want to like I, I would it'd be very rare that I would take a blue dragon over a hobgoblin captain, for example. It's not very often that I'll call out a card that you should be drafting much more highly than its win rate suggests, but that's one of the really, really premium card. Like I think that it's probably correct even to take hobgoblin captain over uh, swarming goblins, which is the second best performing comment. Like I, I actually think, despite the numbers, you should take hobgoblin captain in blue red over every common except dragon's fire. That I think covers my lecture. So I'm going to now turn this over to Twitch chat for questions. If, if you have any questions, regardless of whether you've asked them before, if uh, you still feel that I haven't addressed them, please ask them now. Also, this would normally be where I would thank my new patrons. Um, unfortunately, new patron support has uh, tapered off a little bit. Thank you very much to everyone who is a patron. Um, I do appreciate all the support that this podcast gets. In absence, anyone new to thank uh, this week, I would instead like to make a request that is, if you're enjoying uh, this content and learning something from it, and you have friends who play magic, especially friends who you like discussing limited with. I would urge you to point them toward this podcast if they're not already listeners. If nothing else, I think that if you're getting a lot out of it, it will likely improve the quality of the conversations that you have with your friends who are drafting if they're also learning and you can discuss these lessons and how you're putting them into practice and everything. So theoretically, good for you, good for your friends, good for me. So really just wins all around. If uh, you have anyone who you think might appreciate a recommendation if you pass that recommendation along. Now for questions. What are my thoughts on splashing other colors when in blue-red? So I do think blue-red is very good at splashing. You have treasure makers from red plus scry from blue, which can help with mana fixing a lot, plus uh, venture from blue, which obviously your second venture can make a treasure. All of those make it pretty easy to splash. That said, my primary factor when considering splashing in any deck in any format is how aggressive am I? The more aggressive you are, the less you should splash because you're playing shorter games and it's you don't have as much time to find your fixing. So I think that the like aggressive red-blue decks should be more resistant to splashing than the like bomb-based, more blue-leaning control decks. But as far as like, well, if I splash a bomb, I get to... I get to become that like controlling deck because now I have a bomb that I can like draw to. All of the incentives are properly aligned there and your ability to make it work if you want to is very high. So I think anytime you see like a splashable bomb and you're drafting blue red and it's not like the actual end of the draft, uh, it's good to take it and lean into trying to be able to support it. Assuming that, you know, we are talking about a legitimate bomb and it's, you know, better than the other cards that you could take and all that. Next question. Why do you think Soul Knife Spy hasn't found more success despite being designed as a card that fits in the aggressive tempo deck? The answer is 
uh, really comes back to something that's come up a lot across various formats, which is that it's a three three mana two toughness creature. It's not super easy to get it through. You often have to like use cards to do it, and it is easy to answer and often easy to answer for value by your opponent in that they can uh, answer it with something like improvised weaponry or precipitous drop that uh, you know gives them some kind of extra resource while killing it. It's just not that good of a card because of that. Next question, what would be a good reason to make the commitment to being blue-red? Uh, like I said, mostly what's going to happen is you're going to start red because red is a strong color and has a lot of strong cards. And then the other colors won't be open and blue will be, and it'll be very open. And you'll just be like, okay, fine. I'll take this like seventh pick Jin wins here that's here, despite the fact that it's the best blue common. Uh, you know, there's nothing else for me to be so sure. Like you, you really do need the signals to be that strong if you're just like moving in for a common. Because again, you know, the archetype wins infrequently. You can assume that it might win a little bit more than it has historically if you avoid the traps, but that's still not going to make it a top archetype. That's going to make it, you know, maybe like not worse than blue-green or something if you draft it right. So you, you should generally be trying not to draft blue, but if it's pretty clear that roughly no one else at the table is blue, then you can move in later. The other reason would be I opened like Imrith and got past Dragon's Fire and, you know, just like any anything where you're just like, the usual reason that you draft blue in this format is I opened a legitimate bomb and it's blue, and now I guess I have to figure it out and draft blue even though blue is bad. There isn't another path. Like, you shouldn't be blue. Like, there's none of the blue archetypes are decks that you should draft unless you have a legitimate bomb or it, blue is clearly wide open at the end of the pack and you don't have another better option. It's not even like, oh, blue's open, I should move into blue. You have to have blue is open. And I'm looking for a color. Next question. Would I prefer Trickster in either of the proposed blue-red archetypes like to the other? Uh, I mean, Feywild Trickster, I suppose, is like relatively not aggressive. Like it wants a long game so that it can trigger its thing a bunch. It's a, like 2-2 two -two that basically just like wants to hang out and not get into combat. So like it's better in the like bomb-based version than the aggro version. It's likely actively bad to have to play it in the aggro version. It's not exciting to play it in any version. Yeah, I, for the most part, just like, I really hope your takeaway from my talking about the, uh, like, Die Roll Matters cards and saying, hey, Feywild Trickster is not as bad as the others. I hope your takeaway wasn't, oh, okay, only Feywild Trickster is good. Feywild Trickster also isn't good. Next question. I've had a lot of success in blue-red playing as many uh, Silver Ravens as I can get. They've helped hold off aggressive X1 two drops and getting a good amount of damage when I need to play a scrappy aggro game. Why do you think that it has a below average win rate? I'm guessing the sample size on number of people who play it is pretty low. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if people are only playing it when they're short on playables or generally bad at evaluating cards. I think that like the I am correctly playing like Silver Ravens spot is like narrow and infrequent and i'm incorrectly playing silver raven will happen more often that's not to say there's anything like factually inaccurate about your experience uh, i personally haven't played it a lot but like if, if you have been and you're confident that it, like you have a way that's like working and using it well that's believable to me 
but I do think that that's going to be a minority of that card's play. And it's not surprising to me that it has a below average win rate because it is a relatively low impact card that I would expect most like strong decks to avoid playing most of the time. Next question, contact other planes. I see very late in a draft. Do you like that card? I feel it's pretty good. How do you deal with bombs without charm sleep? As for contact other planes, I think that it's it's not a card with a good win rate. It is a card with a bad win rate. I think that it's not a card that you want in this like aggressive red deck. I do think that it's a card that pairs well with the like bar the gate sign of Stygia flash like reactive flash game control deck using like Ferris fireballs and other pieces of this puzzle that I think you should only draft when you're blue red if you have bombs. I think that like the contact other planes bar the gate control deck might be able to function in like blue black or blue white based more on like venture synergies and value plays and less on bombs in blue red you're not getting those venture synergies so like i have to assume that the reason that you're a blue red deck that's trying to play a controlling game is basically that you have bombs like and then when you have bombs contact other planes is a great way to like find them and the mana to cast them and all that so don't play contact other planes unless you have like multiple bombs and you're playing a control deck uh how do you deal with bombs without charmed sleep red has removal uh and blue has counter spells you can use bar the gate find the villain's lair uh dragon's fire improvised weaponry don't does deal with most bombs fireball does deal with most bombs Sometimes you can just kill your opponent before they cast them. Sometimes they cast them and you tap them with Sign of Stygia on your way to killing them. Sometimes they don't have flying and your creatures do. You're not required to answer all of your opponent's cards. Even the good ones, sometimes you can just kill your opponent instead. Next question is, opening Mordenkainen worth being in blue? I do think that Mordenkainen is a powerful enough card with a good enough win rate that yes, you should first pick it. I don't think that you should like necessarily assume that you're actually a blue deck because you first pick Mordenkainen. I think that there's a reasonable chance that following from pack one, pick one Mordenkainen, you're supposed to be red black more often than you're supposed to be like any blue deck. Like red black is good enough at making treasures. You can play Mordenkainen without any islands, which cast it. And red black is so much better than any blue deck that I think that like, if I first pick Mordenkainen, I think there's like an under 50% chance that there's an island in my deck. Not way under 50%, but still under 50%. Next question, in the aggro archetype, is there ever a good reason to either wizard or sorcerer uh, class cards? Sorcerer, I'm going to go absolutely not. Don't play sorcerer class under any circumstances, basically. And that's not something that I say very often. Most cards, like, okay, maybe there's some way, but sorcerer class, like, no wizard class more plausible if you have like a very low curve you do want to be really careful about how mana intensive it is but i have had like reasonable experiences with the card i do think that like the primary like determiner for whether you want to play wizard class is how low is your curve and if it's very low then you could probably play it uh, next question back to spy uh, this card stats because uh, players play it in decks that aren't built for it, or is it just a bit of card, and is this question worth asking? So, goes in few decks is a trait that when evaluating cards in limited should make you evaluate it as a worse card. So, if your conclusion for Spy is 
it goes in relatively few decks. That means you shouldn't like draft it very highly. If your question is, are there decks where it's reasonable to play Spy? Sure, I could believe there are decks that want Spy. But I don't think that you should draft it highly and draft around it. And I do think that in general, those decks that are built to use Spy well are weaker than the decks that don't try to use Spy. The biggest exception to that that I can imagine is, what if I just have a lot of Dragon's Fires? And if the spot is literally just, well, I have four or five Dragon's Fires, so I think it's going to be pretty easy to like get Spy through and draw more removal without going very far out of my way, sure, take Spy and play it. But if you're like, I think I know the secret to Spy, I think that I can like use it better than other players, that's possible. Uh, I do, in, basically anytime someone says, I think this card is good, I'm more likely to trust them than so- when someone says, I think this card is bad, because the person who thinks it's good will have played with it a lot because they think it's good. And the person who thinks it's bad will not have played with it because they think it's bad. So if you are confident in what you're doing with Spy, who am I to tell you not to? If you have read the card and think the card reads like it's good, and maybe played it once or twice and had some success with it, I'd ask you if you're really sure what you're doing and suggest that, you know, it's possible that your sample size is small and you happen to have had some, like, you know, good variants and if uh, the experience range playing the card. I think that uh, I am currently caught up on questions that are in the scope of this podcast. Thank you very much, everyone, for hanging out. I do think that, you know, my my conclusions on Blue Red are obviously there. This isn't a deck you should draft a lot. Therefore, uh, this isn't information that you'll put into practice very frequently. But I do think that this is an archetype where players are leaving a lot of value on the table. And so, if you do find yourself here, I do think there's like a lot to learn, a lot and a lot to improve from what most players have been doing. Hopefully. Uh, This helps you out the next time you end up in a spot where you should be drafting blue-red. And that's it. Uh, I'll be back next week with another archetype chosen by the patrons. Thanks for for listening, uh, consuming this content in any way that uh, suited you. And presumably, if you're enjoying it, you'll see me again in about a week. Uh, Thanks and goodbye, everyone.